0: This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit FilmGeekRadio.com for more great shows.
1: Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to episode number six of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. And this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO series The Newsroom, created by Aaron Sorkin. And today we are joined by a very special guest. We are uh, pleased to have on from Crave Online and the B Movies podcast, William Bibliani. How are you doing?
2: I'm good, but there's no L in my name. <laughs> What happened? Everyone puts an <laughs> L in my name. There's no L in my name. It's Bibbiani. Everyone calls me Bibs. That's okay.
1: What did I say?
2: You said Bibliani. Uh, Everyone does it. Oh, did
1: it, did it come out with an L? I apologize.
2: It's fine.
1: <laughs> Let me redo that. No,
2: it's fine. <laughs> it'll, it'll be funny.
0: No, no. See, see because Will, Will, Will he just wants to be associated with one of my now new favorite comedians, Mike Burby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys know him,
2: but he's I'm awesome. I'm familiar.
1: <laughs> William Bibiani. Okay. Yeah, All right. Well, uh, it, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, you've been writing uh, weekly recaps and reviews of the newsroom episodes, haven't you?
2: Uh, at Crave Online, yes, I am. I'm normally the film channel editor over there. I cover all the film beat, uh, but uh, I've last this year I started doing more TV stuff. I reviewed all of the Killing for this season, and now I'm reviewing Newsroom.
1: Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> the Killing was a little disappointing oh. this year. Uh... <laughs> all right. Well, today we are actually going to be discussing episode number five of the Newsroom. It's an episode entitled "Amen." It was directed by Daniel Minahan, or Minahan, I'm not sure quite how you pronounce that. And it was written, of course, by our good friend Aaron Sorkin, who, it seems, writes every single episode of this show. All right, Andrew, why don't you give us a brief recap of the episode?
0: Okay, so this week in the newsroom, um, Will McAvoy has the task of trying his best to cover Cairo when all foreign journalists are not quite allowed. Elliot is out in the field, but runs into some difficulties as he meets up with a rock, and... (laughs) (laughs) And
2: the rock just has none of it. I I like like imagining it's the rock, by the way. Considering how how jacked up Elliot gets in this episode.
0: I think that'd be awesome if 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 all of Cairo was against journalists, but they were okay with the. Rock. <laughs> the <laughs> I've completely been derailed in my thought process. Um, also, also this week um, we have stories of Jim and Maggie who are constantly being thrown together in a in a whizzy of movie references and also having to deal with Valentines. We have Mackenzie, who is trying to find out how the economy actually works. And also, we've got somewhat of a fruition to the storyline with uh, dealing with the tabloids and Will and all things Newsnight. I don't know if I've left anything out. Oh, there's also um, the the Cairo correspondent, the Egyptian correspondent, Amen. Um... Don't hate me. I can't remember his real name that they that they reveal in the show. Khalid. Yeah, I think it's Khalid. Um, and I think that's about all that happens this week. Is there anything I
2: left out, guys? Uh, that's the gist of it. <laughs> that's that's the uh. bulk of the episode. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, um, William. Since you're our privileged, we're privileged to have you on the show today. Uh, why, why, let me just um, ask you, real quickly, to start out. Uh, you know, why don't you just tell us your general thoughts on the show so far, your general thoughts on the newsroom as a series, and then uh, what you thought specifically of this episode?
2: Well, the newsroom has been a somewhat frustrating experience because there's so much talent on hand. Aaron Sorkin's a talented writer, usually. Uh, the cast is talented, usually uh and yet the show has a level of inconsistency not so much of quality but in terms of tone and on the emphasis of every episode Uh, it strikes me is that throughout the entire series so far and there's only been five episodes but with the first five episodes should lay a groundwork for what to expect from the show uh it's had a very difficult time balancing these sort of relationship soap operatic uh subplots between the characters and the sort of Capra-esque underdog story of um, uh, trying to take on the 24-hour news cycle in principle and in practice. So, you know, we've had episodes where the balance has been really heavily on the journalism, uh, uh, the 112th Congress, uh, which covered a really enormous span of time uh, and focused mostly on uh, the sort of the principles uh, of the newsroom and, and... who they're going up against introducing a villain finally. But then we've had episodes um, like Amen, which are more even handed. Mo- There's as much relationship crap as there is sort of, uh, you know, can we do the news right? How do we handle the story fairly? And these sort of day to day operations uh, within the actual uh, Atlantic news network or, or something like that. What's it, called? What's it again? It's ACN. What's the ACN stand for? Atlantis Cable News Atlantis Cable News Alright, there you go Uh, So, you know, this episode It's an interesting episode because I thought last episode Was just spectacularly awful I mean, just really honking bad It it was, um Yeah uh, I was really taken aback by how they could do an entire episode About how focusing on people's personal lives Distracts from the greater issues uh, Involved in the lives of the audience Uh, and doing that in a show that does the exact same thing and focuses so much on their personal lives that the greater issue of the episode is completely lost. And I just was like baffled by the entire, and yet this episode seems much more conventional in a lot of ways. Here's the story of the week. We got the, 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 the revolution, the, the military coup in, in Egypt. Uh, we got a new, uh, we got a new correspondent. He's been kidnapped, and we got to deal with that. Meanwhile, in subplot land, you know, Maggie and Jim—will they ever get together? Uh, you know, they're they're trying to figure out Valentine's Day and the uh, the subplot with Nina. You know, sort of attacking them from a gossipy perspective. Um, I don't know if that's resolved, but it certainly seems to be. And uh, and so that was the gist of it. And this really awkward Rudy reference, uh, which on one hand was... Should we talk about that? So they... Will... There's For me, the key scene in the entire episode. Early on in the episode, uh, Mac goes to Will in front of everyone and says something about the amount of time that they lost on an episode because of a segment, to which Will says, everyone stop and look at Mac because she's going to have to count on her fingers. Which is just true humiliation. Mac fires back with... Uh, an attempt to humiliate him on her own, and she completely fails because what does she got? He took tap dancing lessons as a kid. His parents made him do it. What are you going to do? That means nothing. So then uh, Will fires back with another accurate intellectual insult, uh, which is she thought every week on This Old House they were fixing the same house, uh, which is obviously (laughs) a little humiliating. And then she fires back with, well, he cries at Rudy, to which everyone says, well, everyone cries at Rudy, particularly that scene where the entire team you know, volunteers their spot on the field to Rudy right towards the end so that he can finally appear at least on the sidelines in a big game. And then later in the episode, uh, after will uh, ponies up out of pocket, $250,000 to get Amen uh, uh, back safe and sound. Everyone in the office lines up outside his office with a small donation to try to help alleviate the financial burden of that. Uh, and it's this big Rudy moment. Um, And on one hand, that almost works because they established that Rudy was an emotional thing to Will. He actually like it would actually mean something to him to do this reference. On the other hand, they are kind of just stealing the ending of Rudy and sort of justifying it. I'm curious whether which came first. We can say, well, Will loves Rudy. We're going to make everyone uh, do an homage to a scene from Rudy uh, to, to show their appreciation to Will or, you know, what movie I love Rudy. We should do the ending of Rudy and justify it somehow in the episode. And I'd be very curious to hear like what came first, the chicken or the egg in that instance. but again, for me, the thing that's just frustrating is this annoying tendency to sort of waste Mac as a character because she has she was introduced as this sort of driving force behind the new uh, uh, newly moral, newly ethical newsroom or the news night, I guess is the show on the actual series uh, and yet ever since. There have been constant sort of attacks on her intelligence and a tendency to turn her into something of a buffoon. And even her role is like the show's conscience as sort of Jiminy Cricket, we gotta do the right thing. Even Will has taken that up. Will has totally usurped that role as the paracon of virtue, because he actually has more to lose. I, I think you're
1: I think you're absolutely right about that, in terms of Will finally taking up that mantle. Um, one of the things I've complained about over the past couple of weeks is that I I really don't find Will to be a very likable character. I don't think he's very heroic. I don't think he's very noble. I think he comes across most of the time as just an arrogant asshole. Um, And I think this is the first episode in which I finally found myself going, "Okay, Will, you're a nice guy. You're actually doing some. You're you're actually uh, looking to other people." And you're actually saying some nice things about them and looking to support them. And for once, your mind isn't only on yourself. And so for the first time, you know, so far in the series, I actually found myself rooting for uh, Will instead of Mackenzie. So I think you're right. That transition has finally occurred. And I'm not sure what that means for the character of Mackenzie.
2: I just, I don't see what function she can do on the show. If everyone is, every there's a scene in this episode where Will uh, is defending Mac and his entire crew from Nina, saying that they're real journalists. And in that speech, he describes her as, quote, a grown woman who has to subtract with her fingers. That's him defending her. All right. And this entire episode, we reveal that, you know, this woman who is in charge of Uh, supposedly one of the biggest news shows on the air, knows literally nothing about the economy. Like, literally. And on one hand, it gives Sorkin an excuse to catch the audience up and explain uh, uh, the whole Glass-Steagall act and everything like that, which everyone should know about. Uh, but why did it have to be Mac?
3: A few months ago, I agreed to appear on a panel at the Paley Center called Is TV News Equipped to Cover the Economy? Excellent subject. I think so, but here's the thing. Yeah? I'm not equipped to cover the economy. I don't know anything about economics. I'm sure that I'm expecting you to be an economist. You're a producer. Yeah, but what I'm saying is I don't know anything about the economy. Nothing. I never studied it in school. I never read the business section. I never reported economic news. You've been so the- producing economic news. We've been doing five minutes a night for months. Yeah, I just... Set aside a five minute block and let you and Will go at it. You've been approving the subjects. I trust you. What does that mean? I pretend to read what you give me and then I nod. Okay. Have you been listening to her? I this have time? been listening very closely. And? I do not understand a word you're saying. Kenzie. Can we save the scolding Thomas Friedman? Do you mean Paul Krugman? Which one's The Economist? Paul Krugman. Then that's who I meant.
2: And why is it that every single time that Sloan Sabbath, Olivia Munn's character, uh, tries to ex- to explain this to her in a very clear, very simple way that the audience can get. She can't focus for more than 15 seconds without getting completely distracted by her relationship difficulties with Will. Right. What, yeah. what the hell is that? What are they doing to this character? I'm fascinated. It's
1: definitely a problem. Um, but so, it, it, from what you're saying, it sounds like, you know, while many critics have been praising this episode as a step in the right direction especially compared to last week it sounds like you were definitely overall pretty frustrated
2: no i i people are praising this episode really
1: yes yes it's actually getting quite a bit of praise uh comparatively speaking
2: what are they praising exactly because i like to sort of there's a there's a video game critic I like Ben Yatzie Krosha, over at The Escapist, mm-hmm. and one thing he says is he doesn't like to read other people's reviews, partially so that he doesn't become subconsciously biased, and partially because he thinks he's the only person whose brain works right. Uh, well, I have to get I have to
1: confess your review uh, was actually the only uh, specific review I read of the episode. Uh, this is just going based on headlines I've seen tweeted and different things I've seen on social media from critics that I follow, who have said uh, I I. I did see multiple people tweeting about how uh, this in their opinion was probably the best episode so far
2: I would disagree with that I would say the 112th Congress is in many respects the best episode I've seen of the ep- show so far uh, I thought that was the one that kept the relationship stuff which always feels very forced like oh we're gonna do a Valentine's Day episode Maggie's gonna have a speech about how much Valentine's Day it all feels very sitcom to me uh, and 112th Congress in they took, it took place over so much time that all of that relationship stuff had to be done in very quick little chunks, uh, and it had to support the main plot line, which is of course the the election, the Tea Party, uh, all of that stuff. And it just felt like the most interesting thing, the thing that makes the newsroom worth making, as opposed to some other show HBO could have could have done, is the sort of the very principle of it the sort of idea of we're going to show what an idealistic news team would have to deal with uh, in this day and the sort of uphill battle of that and the sort of fight for common sense and why should that be so fucking hard Uh, and for me that episode was the one where I was like this is what I want the show to be although I've been very critical of this this series so far I hold it to a very high standard as I would hold any show to a high standard uh, but it is sometimes difficult to see the forest, uh, to see the trees for the forest when you're watching a show, especially one that's serialized like the newsroom, or as supposed to something like Law and Order, um, that is sort of, you know, it's the first season, it's kind of discovering itself. And there are a couple of different things at play here, and I have a feeling that what some people like about the newsroom is what I might hate about the newsroom, and vice versa. Some people might like the relationship stuff more than the actual A-plot with the sort of Capra-esque underdog news team, uh, and that's not me. Um, One of the things I discovered when I was reviewing The Killing of this last season was that i had kind of been judging it as more of a cop story based on a single character's death and in sort of a Twin Peaks way how that was expanding and forcing everyone to learn about the people in the world around them. When by the end of the series, what became more clear was that the entire show was about local politics and the impact local politics had on people on a very individual basis to the extent that it can relate to someone completely unrelated to that system's murder. So maybe we'll find, as time goes on, uh, that the newsroom was after something a little different, that maybe its focus was not clear on a week-to-week basis and it's only sort of a big picture thing. But on a week-to-week basis, I have been very frustrated by the series' inconsistency in tone, in theme, and uh, in, in just basic structure. And the difficulty it's had balancing interpersonal drama, which has always felt very forced to me. Uh, and the the grander uh, uh, scope of its sort of raison d'être from a thematic perspective. Uh, I'm much more interested in the scenes on the 44th floor with Fiona Lansing than I am with Jim hiding under a table because Lisa showed up unannounced. Adam, right? Um, yeah.
0: One question, Will. You you mentioned earlier how maybe the things that you're loathing about the newsroom are things that other people will love and we'll find out this this shift in what the newsroom really was. Um, When you're talking about a show in which, as you're saying, the A-plot would be for this underdog news team, what exactly would define a win for this underdog news team at the end of the season?
2: Well, for me... I think they've actually kind of put themselves into a little bit of a corner by setting it a couple of years in the past, actually. Because by setting it a couple of years into the past, we know that they didn't succeed. The news is still broken today. So they can't succeed. And what we're kind of left with is they're going to have to be perpetual underdogs throughout the entire series. They can't just tell... you know The news just can't change. It never will. So we're looking at... A tragedy, uh, on a weekly basis that is being sort of doctored up and sort of being, being painted as an inspiring story. But the only way I can see the series ending is with everyone moving on, uh, having sort of, you know, they, they might be proud of their accomplishments at news nights, but overall rather failing. Um, and, there's, and that's one of the things I liked about the 112th Congress. It was a very bittersweet episode in a lot of ways. Despite all the efforts they had to expose the Tea Party, look who kicked ass in that election. Um, so from the perpetual underdog is really where this series lives, where the drama lies. The idea that uh, we're always going to be fighting, and even if we succeed on a personal level, we are also going to fail. Uh. And, but we're doing it anyway because of the sheer principle of it, and that matters, particularly in a journalistic milieu. So, yeah, I don't know if there is any sort of victory uh, in the cards for these characters. I think any victory they have is going to be a personal victory, and it just frustrates me that the personal stories that we're getting through these characters, with a few exceptions, Neil is obviously has a very idealistic view of the news, uh, but for the most part, all the personal stories are based on who are they going to date, <laughs> i mean okay
0: it's it's kind of harsh, hard that a lot of the personal stories have to do with relationships and dating in that we're dealing with is Jim and Maggie ever gonna get together is is will and Mackenzie ever gonna get over their fact their their whole thing and finally realize they want to be together again uh, what the hell is this Wade fellow doing in my newsroom? All of these things are kinda, kind of kind of. I I don't really want to say weighing it down because I'm one of the few people who, from time to time, especially with this episode, I'm enjoying the 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 fun of that for the moment. Um, but since you since you said since as you said that any victory that comes out of this show will have to be a small personal victory, almost to the effect of Charlie Skinner telling a a morning show talk ho- a morning talk show host to go to the commercials immediately or he will be found in a trunk somewhere how can you see anything other than other than these relationships being as big a part of the newsroom as it already is
2: well i would like that personally i think everyone has and well if you look at a show like um lost for example and that show was about everyone's in an interesting situation and then we learn through flashbacks what's going into that. And while we did have romantic subplots, but it was largely, you know, everyone's subplot was in some way based on their principles of them as a character. Sawyer was very uh, self-serving. Is he going to, you know, be able to overcome that and think of the good of everyone involved on the island? Uh, Is Jack ever going to be able to get over his control issues? Um, Is Kate ever going to be able to not screw anything up? Uh, So here... Everyone's kind of interlocked. Everyone sort of agrees with each other, at least now, finally, on the principle of the thing. And as a result, uh, the the main cast, all that we have left for them, really, is this very artificial melodrama of who are they going to date. I mean, if, even if you look at Jim and Maggie, who have an increasingly good amount of chemistry, and I like both of those actors, particularly Allison Pill, a lot. Um, if you look at how their relationship started it started with mac going to gym and saying you see her you should fall in love with her that's not good yeah. romance that's not like you, you know that's not they didn't start off with like hating each other and like because you look at like the great like tv romances or any great romance really like, like very few exceptions uh they start off with two characters who you can't imagine together and then they they end up you can't imagine them apart, and that's if you go to something like moonlighting, or even like uh, Ted Danson and ah, um, uh, oh, forget her name, Shelley, Shelley Long on Cheers. All right, there's there's a there's a dynamic here. Whereas every Sam and Diane. Thank you. Yeah, that drove me nuts. Thank you. Uh, but here, it seems like such a foregone conclusion, because you see her in the first episode. We've gotten to like Don more over the course of the series, I think. But as a boyfriend, he's kind of a dick. He was really manipulative last uh, in the last episode, uh, to a very monstrous degree, in some respects. Um, certainly a very Machiavellian one. Uh, it seems so inevitable that what I'm waiting for is... Sort of like what happened on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, where you know that Xander and uh, Allison Hannigan's character's name is... Willow. Willow, Willow. thank you. God, I'm so out of it today. Uh, You know that Xander and Willow are going to get together from the beginning of the series, and then by the time they do, the situation has changed in such a way that getting together makes it more dramatic. They're technically cheating on people, and then the guilt of that keeps them together further, and then when they're finally free to be together again, she finds out that she's gay. You have to establish uh, roadblocks for this relationship and the roadblocks to the relationship in the newsroom are very forced. She's in a relationship that we know has got to end sometime because she's a strong woman and she, she's going to grow out of this sort of um, not quite dependent, but certainly not level-headed relationship with Don. Um, And, and, but, but is he going to wait for her? He's already dating Lisa, but he doesn't really care about her that much um, to the extent that when, when he, Maggie talks about Valentine's Day. He assumes they're talking about the two of them. She knows he's in love with her. He knows that she likes him a lot. This is seems so inevitable that it's not very interesting. And then we have Mac and Will, and that the whole thing is like, oh, when are we going to find out their backstory? Oh, second episode. And she's going to email it to everyone. Oh, how hilarious. And, you know, again, it feels rather inevitable. And we're just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop as opposed to... We, not being able to imagine them getting together, it just seems like we're kind of filling time until they do. Because there's not enough interesting interpersonal character drama going on separate from that. There's no one's arguing principles, no one's... It, that's all done. Everyone's together, everyone agrees, and now it's just who's everyone going to fuck.
0: Right. <laughs> okay, alright.
1: <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still waiting for uh, Charlie to ultimately win the day by seducing Leona... And uh, you know, fix everything. I, I think that I think that you know that's the relationship I really would like to see. And here's what uh. I want to
2: see: it's HBO explicit Game of Thrones sex scene with Sam Worthington yeah. and Jane Fonda.
0: All right, you you talk about the the classic um, romantic archetype in television, um, Sam and Diane. And I thank Community for cementing that relationship. Those those character names in my head because I would never have remembered it if it wasn't for that joke in Community. Um, I'm going to worry up front, I haven't seen Community so there You, you go. haven't seen Community? Oh, you totally need to watch that anyways um, And so many others But when you think of shows More in the last few In the last decade or so um, I, I think of Scrubs With um, Zach Braff And Chalk Sarah Chalk um, you, th- <laughs> you think of Relationships where it's pretty obvious from the get-go that they are going to get together and all we have to do at this point is enjoy everything that leads up to that and that's how I feel when it comes to Jim and Maggie that I'm just, I'm just enjoying the fact that they have this much chemistry together.
3: Happy Valentine's Day.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize it was Valentine's Day. And that people in the office gave each no. other... No,
3: Valentine's Day is Monday, not today. And these aren't for you, they're from you.
0: I am more confused than I was Don before. Don
3: planned a beautiful night for us on Monday. You and me? Yes, Don planned a romantic evening for you and me. Me and him. That... And I don't want it to be ruined by Lisa, who will ruin it if she doesn't have a romantic Valentine's Day. Last year, her boyfriend forgot that it was Valentine's Day and went to a Rangers game with his friends. She got drunk, made us watch Overboard, and reviewed every bad Valentine's Day she's ever had, which was all of them. Not this year. You're going to be like St. Valentine himself. You're going to... St. Valentine, actually... Focus, nerd. Okay.
0: The same with the fact that Will and Mackenzie are having these moments. And I, I guess you guys are right in the fact that you put forward the idea that while Will and Mackenzie are having a bit of a back-and-forth moment with the look she's about to count with her fingers, and I view... And maybe it's because I am I have part asshole in me, but I view it more as, um look... I know I'm making fun of her, but she's mine to make fun of. You don't make fun of her. I can make fun of her. But he makes
2: fun of her in front of the entire office and behind her back. And that's why I don't quite buy that. You see what I'm saying? He like he says, hey everyone, wait, look, she's gonna count with her fingers. Was that entirely necessary?
0: Well, I mean, you know, when, I, you're, I, not, I think when you're in was... <laughs> Sorry. I,
2: I, 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 ahead, I was Drew. just gonna say, I, I,
0: I
1: think... That Sorkin was trying to play that off as, look, it, it, it's an amusing character quirk that she still has to count on her fingers. The problem is, the show has such a, a history of being condescending towards women that it's very difficult to read that as just an amusing quirk. You know, maybe if 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 the show had treated women differently in the past we would just look at that and be like, oh, that's kind of funny, and not think anything of it. But within the context of of the series so far, you're right. It it is a little bit harsh.
2: Now, now Sorkin, you know, most, I think, Hollywood writers, and I think this is a fair estimate, most of them are men. And the traditional cliche is that men don't really get women and know how to write them as well as perhaps a woman would. There are exceptions, and a lot of people think Woody Allen does great, but let's let's move on. Lars von Trier. Lars von Trier. Interesting choice, but fair enough. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we we do have this entire cast of women going here. And um, we Aaron Sorkin's been doing a bunch of TV series. Now, I didn't watch all of the West Wing. Now, did you guys watch all of the West Wing? Are you guys West Wing fans? I have seen all of the,
1: the seasons that Sorkin was behind.
2: Fair enough. Now, in for, for, that for, for, series, you- I'm curious, I would like to, to know, was his treatment of the female characters more fair and balanced
1: it was there were some very very strong female characters on the show and even the female characters who were frequently portrayed as maybe a bit more naive or for lack of a uh, better term dumb even those women were portrayed as having other strengths and other characteristics that that uh show the audience that they still deserved respect and overall the female characters in that show were much more well-rounded i think compared to the female characters on the newsroom
2: okay well that's good because i don't think any of us want to accuse aaron sorkin of sexism um outright anyway because but it is it's, it's a disturbing trend within this series that the female characters are all constantly kind of being put down by male characters, even ones uh, who ostensibly care about them. Right. And I'll give, I'll, I'll give some exception to Olivia Munn, uh, whose character is, is built up as intensely intelligent, and I, I, I almost wonder if it was sort of in a reaction to the idea, oh, I created all these characters with all these flaws, I should create a very smart woman who has no skills whatsoever in the romantic milieu and maybe never will, uh, but again, they also have no idea what to do with her either, and she spends this entire last episode explaining things to the audience, very right. forthright. Um, right. Kind of waiting to see if they ever do anything with her. But uh, yeah, but yeah, it's 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 frustrating. And again, we're going to get a bigger a bigger picture of this once the uh, season is completed, once the series is over. After that, but as we're watching it as it goes, it is distracting. And it's, it's hard not to comment on it. And it makes you wonder what the hell.
1: Right. I, I, that's one of the, the main topics I think that has come up over the course of, of this podcast over the past couple of weeks is just that idea of how Sorkin treats women. Uh, we've also frequently talked about you know how uh, Sorkin deals with actual news, how Sorkin is portraying the character of Will. There are a few dominant – I guess you could call them issues that seem to keep popping up in every single episode. That could be problems. Um, now our conversation has kind of been all over the place. Uh, so b- b- before we move on, Andrew, I want to make sure that you get a chance to, d- you know, definitively say what you felt about this episode. I, I got, I-, I get the impression that you liked it overall. I- is that correct?
0: Oh hell yeah! I love this episode okay. so much. What, I mean.
1: What, what was it specifically about this episode that you that you really enjoyed? Because I remember uh, last week you were fully on board with Corey and myself in saying that last week's episode was absolutely god awful. So so what switched it around for you this week?
0: Um, I'd like to say that it had a lot to do with the relationship melodrama and the fact that I almost got to detach myself from everything that was horrendous last week and all of the problems I've had with the newsroom dealing with its coverage of the news and its condescending tone as to saying this is it being done right, and able to enjoy basically the quirk that you guys are are, are somewhat just getting down on, because I... I just, like, even that moment, we've talked about it already, with Mac counting on her fingers, like, that put me in stitches, and I enjoyed it so much. Watching Will under the table, that was hilarious. Even, I think, the best, even at the end, when we have the culmination of the Rudy scene, I was ready to tear up, and I do love Rudy oh so much. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting you you bring that up because I
1: kind of feel the same way about the newsroom overall in that there's something about the show where even though I'm frequently in the back of my mind going, this is not good, this is not good, this is a problem, this could be be an issue, I I don't think I should be liking this, something about the way Sorkin writes it, and perhaps it's because it's so melodramatic and so – Grandiose, and it, it just—it's easy to get caught up in it. I think so. Even though intellectually, I'm really not on board with the show most of the time. Emotionally, and just in terms of my enjoyment of it, I—I'm I, kind of having a good time, and that was the same with this episode as well.
2: I have a question. Would you say that you sure. are more in love with the idea of the show than the actual execution of the show? Absolutely. I, I I think
1: that's that's absolutely it. You know, even when intellectually I'm like, this is not working, I can still sort of appreciate what Sorkin is going for um, and just kind of getting I, for some reason, Sorkin, I think, is very good at crafting situations in which because there's they, they're so, quote unquote, feel good and often a bit naive or optimistic or melodramatic it's easy to get caught up in them i think and to just want to go along with it and hope for the happy ending along with
2: the rest of the characters does that make sense yeah it does when you say that though i'm reminded of an abusive relationship oh sure (laughs) <laughs> in, in that you know, oh, I yeah. just, it's so good, and I, I love the idea of being in this relationship with this series. But it hurts every week, every Sunday. It nice. comes home, and it hurts me. I think I think I have the,
0: I have the best way to put this, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a callback right now. Earlier, I, okay. I I alluded to Mike Birbiglia, the comedian, and I've been like for the last three days, I've been on a loop listening to his stand up special, Sleepwalk with Me. Um, have either of you guys heard it? I have not. I haven't seen the special. I've seen the movie. You've seen the movie? Oh, I'm jealous of you. Um, yeah. And he t- he talks about this idea of when he was younger and he would see his father, and in the middle of the table, he'd, he, he'd ask him a question, and his father would... Get up in a rage and go i'm just eating this and then he he 'd be like, "Why are you getting so angry? Are you hungry and then later on in, he comes back to it where he has an angry episode for almost where where he can see that the other person he's having this episode towards has no clue as to why he should really be angry, and he recognizes the fact that he's just having that same moment that his father had earlier in his lifetime. And that's how I feel this show is. I'm having my... I'm having my angry moment. And I can recognize that the show knows what's wrong with me. It doesn't have reason to. It's just there. But I'm having my angry moment. But I can understand why the angry moment is there. (laughs) I feel like every week on, on this podcast, I'm
1: back talking about some of my same problems with it. And yet, when I'm watching the
0: show... I'm not really upset. <laughs> <about> <laughs> and also, and also, I, I, I I've alluded to it a few times on this podcast before. But I love broadcast news, and Aaron Sorkin telegraphed one of the greatest callbacks and execution jokes relating to broadcast news in this episode.
2: That was cute. That was cute. What, I think you know when you said uh, Andrew won. Uh, about how you keep coming back to the same issues with this series. I think that's one of the fundamental issues with the series, is that it is so broad and its goals are so far-reaching that uh, it's almost difficult to argue the minutia. We keep coming back to arguing the principles of it, because the minutia of every episode, the episodes aren't terribly tightly constructed. In fact, some of the early ones in particular, I mean, early ones were only at five, but the first couple of episodes in particular just seemed all over the place in terms of structure. Um, That You know, we really can't talk too much uh, in in so much great detail about, oh, and then uh, Amen was kidnapped. We can talk about this entire plot and and what that meant because it's all focused on the overall theme of the series, this sort of struggle between uh, principle and practicality in the media, uh, that we keep coming back to the bigger themes. We keep coming back to the bigger issues about the series, and we can't focus sometimes too easily on... Little things like the way the character development was this episode, these particular scenes in this particular episode. Well, well, well. It all, I, I also think it doesn't help that
1: oftentimes when you do focus on the minutia, the minutia isn't very well
2: executed. Exactly. Exactly. The minutia isn't that interesting, and so we're still stuck focusing on the basics. Right.
1: Well, I do want to talk a little bit about, I guess you could say, one element of "quote unquote." Minutia that happened on 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 this episode, um, Will. I'm I'm really interested by that idea you brought up earlier that maybe the show is just one grand tragedy playing out, and that ultimately this 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 news team can't win. Um, you know, right now we're halfway through the season, and I found it very interesting that that in in this episode one of the main motifs that keeps coming up is that people are constantly hurting themselves and you know whether it's jim with the door or don trying trying to break down uh, the, the the other door um there's so many characters that by the end are walking around with either bandages or splints you know i i i kept i i'm i'm wondering to myself is Aaron Sorkin trying to foreshadow the fact that ultimately, by trying to quote fight the good fight and quote speak truth to stupid,
2: are they just
1: really hurting themselves? In that the is idea? a
2: very interesting point. I had not really considered that in a, in a grander context. Um, I'm not sure how intentional that is. It's always difficult to argue artists' intentions, uh, even right. if they, even if they say it. That, that they could be thinking about it after the fact. Who knows? Uh but it's in the text actually and we we are seeing the way that these characters are destroying themselves in sometimes very real grounded ways, and in this episode a very comedic way uh in the in their efforts to put on the best damn new show possible uh and that right. is that is an interesting observation actually and I was wondering why the slapstick in this episode didn't really bug me as much as it often did um and by slapstick, I, I don't necessarily even just mean the phys- physical humor, I mean the broad humor. Uh, when Mac accidentally emailed her relationship troubles to the entire office, I was, the groans, my neighbors could hear it, it was insane. But here, yeah. here, like that, that opening scene, actually, I thought was actually a very strong uh, scene, actually, the whole sequence. Uh, when, uh, you know, Maggie runs in, we've got a new story, and her and Jim have to run down the hall, edit something together, the, the rat-a-tat dialogue that Sorkin is so famous for, uh is all serving a purpose it's all everyone's very focused on an immediate goal rather than some sort of pie in the sky goal and for me a lot of the highlights of this series were scenes like that like even at the end of uh, the last episode which did hit a decent crescendo uh when there was the the assassination attempt and everyone was just sort of running around doing everything they can to to put on the best damn news show possible And the music was stirring and everything was like, and and I got swept up in it. It was well made, um, even if it was very broad. And uh, here you're right. Maybe there is a a little something behind that. And even if there isn't intentional, I do think it supports the idea that these people are destroying themselves and in some cases potentially destroying their careers. I mean, if Will fails, um, he's not going to be on the air for three years. You know, he's completely putting his career at risk for this. So is Charlie Skinner. So is Mac. The younger people, maybe they'll have a career after this. Maybe it'll sully them. Who knows? Uh, but even those people are physically hurting themselves just on principle.
1: Right. I, I, I mean, I mean the, the, the overly analytical side of my brain wants to pick apart individual lines. Like, the, that that opening gag with Jim in the door, I mean, he, he kind of looks at Maggie and he's like, the door is glass. How can you not see me? Um, and just that idea that you should be able to see what's going on, but you can't. Um, maybe this is all for nothing. I wonder if that's Sorkin trying to tell us something. And I think it'll be interesting if, if your theory is correct, and ultimately it is all for nothing. Um, because, you know, one of the main critiques that people have against the show is that it, it's hypocritical and it contradicts itself and it doesn't live up to what it, what it claims to want to live up to. So it'll be interesting if that actually is what happens to the people in the show and if maybe Aaron Sorkin has been uh, right all along, so to speak, and he's been aware of the criticisms that people would throw against the show and it's all been part of his master plan. I kind of doubt that's the case, but you never know. Maybe Aaron Sorkin is sitting back and... Uh, just kind of laughing maniacally to himself as he watches people argue about his his little show.
2: Well, you watch uh, even this episode and you can see individual scenes where you can see the... the... He's a very clever writer. No one's arguing that. Um, his scripts for... The Social Network, or the one he co-wrote Moneyball, or A Few Good Men, these are all excellent screenplays. And they're all very well constructed. There's a, there's an interesting scene. It's not good because of the issues I've discussed earlier, but the scene earlier with uh, Sloan and Mac, uh, where Sloan is explaining uh, uh, Glass-Steagall, um, and Mac keeps getting distracted by... She threw away Will uh, because she went back to her old boyfriend, who was a dick. And... Sloan just says, "Yes, we repealed Glass-Steagall," and it was like, "Okay, I see what you did there. You you tied everything together, and you used the relationship problems as a metaphor for a grander social issue." It didn't quite work because what does that really give us? Um, And it certainly didn't work because, again, it was an entire scene dedicated to how stupid Mac is. But the actual construction of the scene and the the notion behind that exchange was a clever writer at work. You know, it was well thought out. It was interestingly conceived. Um, and I see that. And, and I
1: wonder if that's perhaps why week after week, even though in the back of my mind I'm, I'm noticing all of these problems, I'm still going along with it because I can, I can sort of see what Sorkin was going for. Even if it didn't fully pan out, I can see what he's going for, and I, I, I like his intention.
2: Right. There's, there's, a, there's a principle I go by uh, in all of my reviews, and I mostly review films. Uh, But I think it applies to anything, which is I'm always more interested in a noble failure than successful mediocrity. You know, if you can make the best, you know, oh, I have a weird neighbor uh, uh, sitcom in the world, who gives a fuck? If, on the other hand, you are trying to do something interesting and maybe don't pull it together at the end or or throughout the, the series, I am much more captivated by talented people trying something giving it a shot uh and even if they come up short at least we have something that we wouldn't have had otherwise at least we had someone trying and then you know hopefully it contributes uh to the sort of melting pot of pop culture and then maybe someone can improve on it later If that makes sense yeah
1: yeah I, that that makes that makes total sense
2: i i think of something um... like lost lost was started out really strong ultimately kind of fell apart a bit but it was always trying and i think that's why so many people stuck with it even in the later frustrating seasons is because it was different and god bless them they were attempting to put something on television that we hadn't seen before
1: okay so now i have to pose the question to you do you think the newsroom is different enough
2: i think the newsroom's ambitions are different enough I think it is interesting to have uh, a series on the air that espouses uh, a sort of mission statement. Uh, And on one hand, yeah, you're shooting yourself in the foot. If you can't live up to those ideals, if you can't illustrate those ideals effectively, it's going to fail. But uh, it is in some ways propagandistic, but it's propagandistic towards... Um, A principle I don't think too many people are bitching about. The idea that the news should be legitimately fair and balanced and not just fair and balanced because the other uh, networks are focusing on this political party and we're focusing on this political party and becomes fair and balanced overall. The idea of we're just going to let the truth come out. That is the fundamental principle of journalism, really. Um, And the idea of turning that into a weekly drama is fundamentally dramatic. It really, really is. It is an underdog story. I feel like the first few episodes really stumbled because they hadn't had established an antagonist for that. Like the what? What are we going to do if we if we fail to put on this new show? The risk is we're going to get higher ratings. Oh no! What could be worse? Now that there are stakes involved, I'm much more compelled, and I think uh, the idea of this Capra esque uh, uh, pie in the sky. Dream of an ideal world of journalism is something that keeps you coming back week after week, and you're just, if only because you're hoping that next week they'll nail it.
0: Right. Okay. Um. I have a question. Right. Um. The Corey spoke about this last week on the episode, and I don't know Andrew if you've listened to it or will. Um. Sorkin did an interview on the Fresh Air NPR podcast. Did either of you give it a listen? I have not had a chance to listen to that yet. Um, Will, I didn't hear you. I, I missed that one. No. You missed that one. Well, Sorkin, uh, as you said, always you're, you're always interested in a noble failure rather than um, successful mediocrity. Sorkin came out to admit all of his faults in the fact that a lot of things which I've heard... A lot of people, including you, Andrew, complain about this show being um, completely condescending, completely utopian in a way that it refuses to refuses to accept reality in the news and also to deal with a lot of the story issues. Sorkin comes out to talk about the fact that when he's writing, he knows his failures are in story. He knows all of those things. And he knows that he's writing from a position of hindsight, in that he's able to have this condescending tone and tell people how they're doing it wrong and live in a world of of almost fantasy, even though it's in a pseudo-reality. As if it's a pseudo-reality. And... Does that fact somewhat negate all of those problems that you have with the show and let you let you go with okay, he's assumed all of these things let's let's give it to him and let's enjoy all the rest that this show has to offer in the way that everyone will sit down and enjoy the 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 story of walt and jesse and breaking
2: bad <laughs> um I, I, i'm gonna take this one uh my response to that is no no it doesn't uh really change anything for me i i respect him i do for coming out and saying uh you know i i acknowledge that the show has these problems we accept these problems because they're in service of this other thing that we're doing that is perfectly reasonable and good for him uh, and I think you'll find that almost any show, even the best ones, they do have sort of inherent flaws. What matters is how they overcome that and they make it clear to the audience from the get go preferably but hopefully very soon uh, what the series is trying to be and they focus on the qualities that make that emphasize uh the series intentions over the series potential flaws And what we are seeing here on the newsroom, at least from my perspective uh, is difficulty in balancing that difficulty in balancing, you know, in, in sort of emphasizing the stronger qualities inherent to the premise versus the sort of versus the kind of things that keep the newsroom from working as a traditional show in many respects, you know, the, again, the, the, the romantic subplots distracting from the grander plots and sometimes vice versa. Um, you know, when you're dealing with a show that is trying to create a, a, um, almost a superhero version of a news team, people who are you know espousing ideals that maybe even they themselves can't live up to, but that's rather the point. That's all well and good. You need to present a show that makes it difficult to miss that. And here we are seeing show uh, episodes where there are constant niggling distractions uh, that prevent that show from being clear every single week. Uh, I I admire him. I do. I think a lot of people are afraid to admit fault, particularly while something is still on the air. Uh, And, you know, I, I appreciate that he isn't just saying the show is perfect. You're all wrong. But at the same time, admitting that you have faults doesn't mean that you no longer have faults. And it means that uh, hopefully he'll, he'll sort of, now that he's got a very clear image in his head, hopefully he had it from the beginning, but certainly now he does of what the newsroom is supposed to be. Hopefully next season, maybe it'll be more focused And it'll present his vision of what the show is supposed to be in a clearer way, because right now it feels very muddled. And that is my response to that.
1: I'm curious, Andrew, in this interview with Sorkin, did the phrase mission to civilize come up at all?
0: Sorry, sorry, what was that?
1: Did the phrase mission to civilize come up in the interview?
2: (laughs) I don't believe it did. I'm sorry, have you guys heard people actually, I heard, I think I heard on The Daily Show, where they referred to Will McAvoy, not the newsroom or anything, just the character Will McAvoy, offhandedly as some sort of ideal that no one can live up to. And I was like, oh, I'm no Will McAvoy, but have you guys heard that yet? Because I think I've heard what? that a couple of times, yeah. Uh,
1: that doesn't make any sense to me, because I don't think we've seen that Will is someone worthy of living up to yet.
0: I think I think in the in the public image that they're portraying not so much the the page 6 but the the newsroom the actual show that we're not really seeing we're not really seeing 100% as we would if we were watching it as the daily show or as a CNN broadcast. I think that is what they're referring to as who they should be who they think they're living up to or trying I guess, to
1: guess, but that's not what we've really seen on the show so far. I mean, we saw a little bit of it thankfully this episode and it will be interesting to see how things continue but uh one of the last things i want to touch on real quick is the character of neil because andrew last week we talked about neil and the whole bigfoot incident and how his character has been developed so far and uh his character his character got a lot of screen time this episode and had a a lot of stuff to do and uh personally i was thrilled i was glad we got to see neil get heavily involved in creating the actual news and tracking out a new source and working really hard to make sure Newsnight is putting out a quality program. Um, as I said last week, I feel the whole issue of Bigfoot and that little quirk that he has, uh, I feel like that would have been better if we had learned that after an episode like this one where we really get to see him prove his, his worth, essentially. Uh, Will or Andrew, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Uh, That makes perfect sense to me, and I I entirely concur. This was the episode where we saw what Neil was really made of. We knew he was good at his job, but that was about it. That was about all we had for Neil. Now we see the heart of Neil. We get a bit of his origin story, if you will. Uh, And, uh, yeah, adding Bigfoot after that would take a character who is very idealistic and very, you know, sort of, um, you know. I I keep going to Capra S because that's exactly what this show is. But this sort of, like, you know, idealistic young man. Uh, who also has a quirk, and wouldn't that be fun? Here we have a quirky guy who's also idealistic. I was on one of the trains. Seven-seven? I was going to visit my aunt, and the train had just left Liverpool Street, and I was half-asleep when the bomb exploded. What'd you see? The car filled with smoke, people screaming, crying. Praying. Finally, an underground worker in an orange vest got to us and started leading us up the tunnel into King's Cross and I pulled my cell phone out to call my dad. There was no service. Right. So you started filming it instead. Yeah. And I got out and I, you know, I uploaded it and I sent it to the news station. And you knew then you weren't going to be a mechanic.
0: He's Rudy.
3: Not everything is Rudy. I
0: know not everything is Rudy. Forget it. Some people just don't understand
2: Rudy. Just me and Rudy and Neil and the guy Neil found in Cairo. Amen. Thank you. And all these things, all these structural issues keep jumping out at me uh, throughout this series, but I will yield uh, the floor to other Andrew for his thoughts.
0: (laughs) Um, It's weird because I, I feel very connected to Neil as a character because he seems very similar to how I was in my last job. Um... I am a programmer. I work as a as a software designer and web designer for um a security firm. My last job, I was actually working as a social media consultant for a PR firm and I was that guy who was in the corner of the room who they're like, "Holy shit, we have a blog." And it was it, it's it's a weird moment when you you get to contribute something to the room in a way that completely reevalu- co- sorry, makes the people around you completely reevaluate your worth in the, in that office. And that made it even more even more effective when we got to see Neil's storyline this week. It's it I feel like it might not have been as well executed as Sorkin wanted to, and that comes back to his story faults. Because I feel he almost doesn't know how to write Neil. Because when you see characters like Will, like Mackenzie, like Jim, and Skinner, as well as Maggie. They are all written in such a well put together form. That you almost feel like Sorkin wrote 20 drafts to get them right. Neil on the other hand, it feels like he just doesn't know how to create him in a completely technological world that he wants to have him in and i i truly weep for that but at the same time i get the intention and the point and i loved it anyways
2: let me let me ask you guys this because i think uh uh, there are a lot of people in the critical community who have been rather down on the newsroom and god knows i myself am one of them uh but we're, we're still watching and um we're not necessarily just watching because it's our job what are you guys actually enjoying about the newsroom? do what, what we Let's just speak positively. Let's be constructive. What do you guys like about the newsroom in general?
1: Well, I've been overall fairly positive about the show, I think, on this podcast. And just when I've talked to people about it, I like the show, even though I agree with critics who said it had some major issues. And I think what I like about it is that it, it's that Aaron Sorkin dialogue and these Aaron Sorkin characteristics that we've come to know and appreciate. I mean, if you're familiar with Sorkin's TV work at all, many of the character dynamics that are present on the newsroom are things that we've seen Sorkin do in other shows. And they're not terribly original, but there is something about them that feels universal and does feel interesting there's just enough conflict to pull me into the show and make me overlook some of the flaws in its execution. And I agree with what you said earlier. I think the intentions of the show are good intentions, and it will be interesting to see how Sorkin either lives up to those intentions or fails to live up to those intentions week after week.
0: Um, Personally, watching this show, what I love most has to do with what Sorkin knows how to create the best, which is... um pretty much some of the most not so much interesting but enjoyable in a sense rhetoric that any writer can ever come up with because there, one of the things I enjoy truly in, in life in general is when I can get into these open discussions like how we're having today and not so much like right now but there are there have been many cases in my lifetime in which someone says something which you hear and you go that's not right, sir. And you then follow into a moment of... some A form of edification, but at the same time, a form of... And I, I almost am afraid to say, because the internet will attack me for such things... A form of humiliation, in which, as Sorkin has always said... And I quote, Speaking truth to stupid, and on a mission to civilize... And having that tone in such a way, it's entertaining for me. And that's where I find entertainment in the show, in all of those moments. Which is why things like in this episode, when we're talking about Mac counting on our fingers, that I find hilarious, and I enjoy it. I can see how condescending it is. I can see how bad it is when he's talking about women. But it makes me laugh, and that's what I enjoy. All of those sorkin moments which make me laugh.
1: Well, 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 for me. So it seems like you're yeah. saying it's terrible, and you love it because it's
0: terrible. <laughs> and as I've mentioned on the podcast numerous times, I accept this about myself, and I already know that I am part asshole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh,
2: for me, there's something I, I might be misattributing this quote. I always feel like I am. I think it was Alfred Hitchcock who said, um, "Any character you like them if they're good at their job." And for me, the peaks of this show, when this show is good, like, even if it's just for a scene, this show can be really good. And for me, those scenes tend to be when everyone is doing their jobs, running around, you know, really focused. Like, at the beginning of this episode, when everyone's just focused on getting this episode done in time, um, the pacing is right, Sorkin's dialogue feels entirely in place, as opposed to some of the occasional relationship banter, where it feels a little out of place. Uh, And... This when you compare that to the when you combine that with the underdog story at hand, I am roused. I am legitimately roused by this show, and that's a hard emotion to, to get out of someone. Uh, so that for me is seeing what happens when the show is firing on all cylinders, and the hope that they're going to be able to do that with greater consistency. But that keeps me coming back week from week. That and the inevitable John Stewart cameo we're going to get is just – I'm just waiting for that to happen. I am begging, hoping uh, that that's – because seriously, how are they doing all of this and The Daily Show isn't talking about it?
1: How did The Daily Show – Oh, that's true. I uh, never even thought about
2: how that. How the- they,
0: need, they need the rights from Comedy Central, and that's tough. I mean, they're only HBO. They only put on shows like Game of Thrones. That's-
2: true that. True that. But well, if you're making well, – something-
1: When was the rally to restore sanity? Was that 2010? Will that be – popping up on the show
2: uh well we're already past 2010 if you'll, if you'll realize we're in february 2011 now the show is very rapidly okay. catching up with the present day and i'm very curious how they're going to handle that uh but for me i just thought i remember thinking themselves in the second episode was the second i think it was the first episode the, the episode where will very awkwardly threw in a sarah palin moment uh where he sort of just apologized right. for her how did the daily show not rip that to shreds <laughs>
0: Look, guys, I'm looking forward to season two when they can finally start making up news as opposed to pretending that the news is like this.
2: Yeah, they're Monday morning quarterbacking. It's very easy to say all the stuff when the facts came out months or years later. Uh, uh, and you can just have the characters be right all the time. Uh, so it will be interesting to see what happens if they catch up and they do have to start making stuff up or playing off of scenarios where they don't have all the facts readily at hand.
1: You know, I think you may have just come up with a great idea for a spin off series. Let's get a fake John Stewart type character who says, "I'm going to make the best new satire show that's ever existed," and uh, he's going to tackle Will McAvoy.
2: Oh no! I get-
0: on a on a side note, bringing up um, John Stewart, I was listening to the WTF podcast and they had on John Oliver, and if you don't know him by name, he is the British guy on. Um, community, as well as The Daily Show. And it it was so interesting to hear him say something that I've always been curious about when it comes to that show, in that they have all of these correspondents who they send out to all of these actual real events, which are most of the time worthy of real news coverage, and they think to themselves, I'm here with the intention of making fun of this. Basically. Like, how weird is that? Like, these are people who can all appreciate how, all, how in awe this event really is, but their whole intention is just to make fun of it. I
2: feel like they're not- Well,
1: you could say that arguably that's Will's goal on the newsroom. Not necessarily to make fun of it, but to poke holes in certain institutions and certain ideas, and he- he's naturally going to approach the news in that way.
2: Well, I, I also think that The Daily Show is in, it, it's in many ways it, like The Newsroom, because The Daily Show doesn't so much lampoon the actual news so much as it does the media's coverage of it most of the time.
0: No, yeah. I mean, The Daily Show has a lot of value to it, because, as, as well as The Stephen Colbert Show, but it's just this weird approach that they have to it sometimes, which, which, which makes me have that thought, which I was happy to hear on that podcast with John Oliver.
2: Yeah. Well, I just, again, I just think that that particular juxtaposition, that particular parallel between the series makes an inevitable crossover. uh, uh, Well, I hope it's inevitable. It makes me hope that that's an inevitable crossover because, you know, even if they just put Jeff, Jeff Daniels on the Daily Show in character, uh, how great would that be? How great would that be? I think that'd be a fascinating thing to do. Uh, And I hope, you know, at some point they at least comment on it. They could even just say, you know, did you hear about what happened on the Daily Show? Because they do mention, you know, they they keep talking about other news anchors. For example, they talk; they keep referencing like Cronkite and everyone. And I'm like, and in the first episode, it's like, yo, know, I think of Cronkite, I think of you. I am paraphrasing; that is not the exact line, but he does compare Will to Cronkite, and I'm like, really? That's a lot. That's a yeah. big thing to say.
1: And especially since until the pilot episode of the newsroom, we've been given the impression that Will McAvoy isn't exactly a great journalist and is, quote, the Jay Leno of broadcast news. I'm not sure if that moniker would apply to Cronkite.
0: Oh, oh! and this this kind this you you guys have just brought me back into into my argument of the asshole mentality and why this show works for me so much. You you remind me of the first episode and that that, that brings me back. 90% of the people watching this show aren't watching it because Aaron Sorkin wrote it. They're watching it because they saw that ad, which its entire structure was of Will McAvoy decimating the college student in that introductory scene of the of the show. And that is the biggest asshole moment you can think of in this show so far.
1: <laughs> that's interesting that you, that you point out that they're basically marketing the show as this is a show about a guy who will preach at you. And so far, the show has lived up to that. So uh, why are critics complaining? You know, shouldn't we have known what we were getting into? I mean, come on. The
2: Newsroom is the best show on television. (laughs) Let's not go nuts. Let's not go nuts. But but it is an interesting show, and I'm glad we were able to talk about some of the things we like about it, because um, there's too much talent involved in every frame of the show. Every actor is talented. It has some of my favorite actresses all together in one place. I can't wait. I mean, I'm just begging for a scene where uh, Alison Pill and Jane Fonda get to spar off against each other. How great is that going to be? You know, the, everyone behind the camera, the, the cinematographer, the editor, all these people are really kicking ass. And, uh, I, you know, Aaron Sorkin writes every episode himself, which maybe is difficult. I mean, I know it's difficult, you know, trying to keep everything balanced in your head like that. Uh, but when he when he does a good job, he's, he's a fantastic writer. And so it's got so much potential, just like the characters within the show. And we keep hoping the newsroom will succeed, just like we hope the characters in the newsroom will succeed. And I'm just afraid that on both counts, it's an inevitable tragedy.
1: That's certainly an interesting theory, and it will be interesting to see how the season plays out. Is there anything else either of you would like to say about episode five of the newsroom before we wrap things up?
0: Um, i'm gonna say thank you assholes <laughs> i'm
2: I'm gonna say that the the argument against... you're welcome okay i'm gonna say that the argument against like if mac wanted to have an argument against Rudy which is she totally should have is that Rudy is dangerously obsessive and that the entire movie is arguably about mental illness but uh have <laughs> you watched that recently you get re- you get swept up in it, but if you think about it it's like he has some problems like if he didn't succeed at the end this would be the this would be like the saddest movie since like the last laugh this is like really depressing shit so um that that kind of distracted me but whatever that's 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 neither here nor there um yeah
1: yeah season 2 is going to be will in the asylum recovering from the fact that he's been fired and dealing with all of his uh, psychological problems
0: and all that's on tv there Is reality television. Uh, It's they And they make him watch it Clockwork Orange style. Yeah.
1: And CNN. Those are the two things he has to watch.
0: (laughs) He gets to choose, though, and he chooses reality television every time. (laughs) They're like Jersey Shore or CNN. He's like Jersey Shore, Jersey Shore.
1: all right well i think that will wrap things up for this episode of navigating the newsroom it's been a good episode will thank you very much for joining us today tell me where can people find more of you and your work
2: uh you can find most of my work on the crave online film channel craveonline.com slash film or just crave online click on it uh but you can find all the tv stuff at crave which is all of it is brilliant just just brilliant. Uh, but you can find that on the Crave Online's TV channel, which you can also find from the main page or CraveOnline.com slash TV. And you can also listen to my podcast, the B-Movies podcast. That's three words, all in the title. Uh, you Find us on iTunes, subscribe. We'd love to have you. Uh, and if you want to hear more TV punditry from Crave Online, we have our own TV podcast as well, hosted by Sax Car and Blair Marnell. That's the Idiot Box. I encourage you to check that out as well.
1: All right. Andrew, where can people find you?
2: Um, I'm on Twitter
0: at GmanReviews. You can find all my writing at GmanReviews.com. I'm also doing newsroom recaps over at ScreenInvasion.com. And you can hear my podcast, The Unnamed Movie Podcast, or Tump, if you look in iTunes or over at GmanReviews.com.
1: Alright, I'm Andrew Johnson. You can follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com slash WriterAndrew. And you can occasionally find some of my writing at FilmGeekRadio.com in our blog section. Be sure to check out other shows on Film Geek Radio, like Cinema Fix and The Thin Place. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Navigating the Newsroom on iTunes, and be sure to write in and let us know what you think of the show. Do you agree with us about the newsroom and its problems? Do you think that we're totally off base here? Write in and let us know. Uh, You can email us at navigatingnewsroom at filmgeekradio.com.
0: And please, please, everyone, title your if you're if you yes. fall in this camp, yes. please title your your email subjects "Team Assholes."
2: Yes. <laughs> oh, and follow yes. me on Twitter. I forgot all about that. No, at William Bibiani. Please follow me on Twitter. Wait, I mean, where where can, can people where can people find you on Twitter? At uh, William Bibiani. My full name: W-I-L-L-I-A-M-B-I-B-B-I-A-N-I. So check me and, out. And yo. there's
0: no, there's no L. There's no L in it, except in William.
2: Yes. Okay. There's yeah. two L's. There's two L's in one. All right. You got me.
0: <laughs> okay. I think that
1: will wrap things up for this episode. Andrew, sign us off.
2: Um, you can't
0: make me. I didn't press two.
2: <laughs> this has been a Film Geek Radio production.
1: Film Geek Radio. Yeah.